0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher.
1: We are back Mm. for some more medical Mad Libs, or scenes from a hat. Oh, yeah. I can't even remember what I titled this piece anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you included both of those in the title so as not to miss either of them.
1: Way to outsmart my short attention span past me. (laughs) But uh, and, and we've also got a fun little bit of trivia for you later, which we were talking about fairly extensively before the recording started. I'll give you a hint. It's something that you definitely do not know about James Bond.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can guarantee that
1: no one's going to know this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I'm super, super proud that I got to teach Dr. Josh this. He because doesn't trivia
1: happens. me often, but when he does, oh,
0: <laughs> all I can
1: do is let loose an Owen Wilson.
0: Wow.
1: <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's dive into our medical Mad Libs. Uh, last time, Santosh, I gave you a series of words, and you had to pick three and tie them back to medicine. Uh, yes. And the words you challenged me with in return included mm-hmm. bread, yeah. garbage... Lake, Mm -hmm. shopping mall, and queen.
0: Yes, yes. I I have all those on my little Evernote. Uh
1: So here we are, born to be kings. We're the princes (laughs) of the universe. (laughs) I am immortal. I have inside me blood of kings. (laughs) Uh,
0: <laughs> that that movie soundtrack is so epic I, I can't really watch it you know just uh, or happen in the background but that that here we are born to be kings like when it comes out I have to stop and just weep for a second
1: well that that was a quick reference to Queen but I'll see if I can still mm. work a medical Queen <laughs> reference in
0: nonetheless oh okay I thought you were gonna somehow I thought you were gonna turn this into immortality and, well and, just
1: just as a Islander. fun, here here's your queen tie-in. Not so much the band, although they do deserve it. But fun bit of trivia: What medicine is known as the queen of drugs?
0: The queen of drugs. Uh, let's see. Would it be quinine? Quinine. No. For, because no.
1: No, I. You're you're making alliteration associations. Uh, I will tell <laughs> you, it's known as the queen <laughs> okay. of drugs. Uh, the queen rather than the king, because it was a chess reference, but that doesn't really have too okay. much to do with the drugs, except it can make so many moves in many directions. Uh, <laughs> um, is it aspirin? Maybe
0: aspirin has quite a few applications
1: getting a little closer, but it's actually penicillin.
0: Oh, well, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know it was called the, I, I learned something brand new about, you know, one of my favorite drugs
1: and that's because penicillin can cure a large number of diseases and its mm-hmm. superiority right. to that of other drugs in killing the bacteria or at least until we started developing resistance but yeah sure. so there's <laughs> yeah. there's your bonus uh that's that is the only way i could tie queen to medicine
0: okay that's fair though but that's that's a hell of a way i love it
1: um but let's let's get into it all right so the first word and as long as we're talking about queens Let's go back to Oh Queen Victoria,
0: and oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this yeah. I I don't think we could have you know gone. Did by you without did you
1: really think you were going to give me five words and I wouldn't find a way to tie one of them to Victorian times?
0: I'm very very glad that one of them led to to one of your favorite times.
1: So the first word I chose to tackle was bread, and how okay. how could bread possibly? Tied to medicine aside from, you know, the molds that grows on it and those things. But back in Victorian times, basic staples like bread started to be produced cheaply and in large quantities for the new city dwellers. And Victorian manufacturers in this new age of slow industrialization seized on this opportunity to maximize profits by switching ingredients for cheaper substitutes that would add weight and bulk.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) This, by the
1: way, comes from a wonderful documentary called Hidden Killers of the Victorian Home.
0: (laughs) As opposed to, uh, like, uh, like overt killers.
1: As opposed to (laughs) Hidden Killers of the Edwardian Home, Hidden Killers of the Georgian Home. I watch a lot of documentaries. Let's look at some of the things that led to this adulterated bread. Uh, and then you can take me through what ingesting some of them would do to your body. Bread was usually the flour in order to get, you know, stuff even cheaper than flour, was adulterated okay. with plaster of Paris, oh,
0: come bean on. flour, okay, okay. chalk, uh-huh.
1: or alum. Alum is an aluminium-based compound today used in detergent.
0: Thank yeah.
1: you. <laughs> today used in detergent... But then it was used to make bread whiter and heavier. What would alum do if ingested since, you know, it's a detergent, which is part of today's (laughs) Tide Pod Challenge?
0: (laughs) Well... So it's actually not that part of the detergent. It's not the part that actually does the cleaning. Um, It's what's called an astringent. Um, So it, it takes tissue, at least so when it's put on human tissue or living tissue, it's the it makes it kind of like, Pucker or pull together. Um, So its role in your detergent is to make sure that you know when your clothes are being tossed around, they don't get stretched all to hell. That the fibers still stay you know fairly elastic and taut, so that you know when you put it on, it's not all baggy and stuff, right? So um, you you would actually use alum in a number of ways medically and actually cosmetically, because it had that astringent property that. Women, I believe, used it as a wrinkle reducer. Now, it's going to, like, pucker tissues together. It is aluminum, which is a divalent cation, so it's going to cause nerve type of stuff. And we should be a little bit careful here, Josh, because in very, very, very trace amounts, um, aluminium is used, uh, you know, as in vaccines, um, as a a stabilizer and um, an adjuvant also to actually boost your immune response. So it's not all horrible in teeny tiny doses. But if you were eating like aluminum regularly, (laughs) ingesting it like that, you'd probably, okay, so it would start in your gut, And you'd probably mess with the action potentials that help your gut move. So you would get dysmotility, it would, you know, wreck your bowels, you'd feel like you're going too fast and then too slow. And then probably that same neurological thing would start getting into your body as heavy metal toxicity kicked in. And I'm guessing something like seizures or loopiness and then death.
1: Yeah, that that pretty on. much that pretty much covers it. So not only did this yeah. lead to problems of malnutrition, <laughs> oh, but it okay. often produced a lot of bowel problems and constipation or chronic diarrhea which was often fatal for children in that era. So, you know, if you were a hardy adult, you could probably get past this cuz most of your diet was not white bread. Yeah, it was like a rye or a dark bread with beer but kids would get white bread and milk. And when you start looking down the list of adulterated foods in the Victorian era, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. what do you want to have with your bread? Well, you want to have milk and bread, right?
0: Sure. Okay. Oh, no. Well, tests
1: tests from about 20,000 milk samples in 1882 showed uh, this was done actually not by the manufacturers, but by the household folks themselves after this oh. whole bread scare, they wanted to purify milk, removing the sour taste and smell from milk that had started to curdle. So, no. <laughs> So they added oh, boracic mm-hmm. acid. Small Oof. amounts can cause oh, <laughs> nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, oh. diarrhea.
0: No, no, no. But I mean, there's something worse than this. Uh, okay, this is unpasteurized milk, right? This is before Pasteur. Yes. Oh God. Okay. So if milk, okay. If milk goes off today in your fridge or, you know, you leave milk out, you know, it's been pasteurized. Um, the chances are of you getting like sick from drinking that is not, it's, it's not super high actually. Like you'll get these natural, you know, active lactobacilli and stuff like that, that curdle your milk, but you'll be okay. But back then, Josh, that sour taste and smell was really important because you could have like tuberculosis in your milk because it wasn't pasteurized. Well, specifically sour...
1: bovine tuberculosis.
0: Oh, M. bovis, Mycobacterium bovis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, same damn thing as far as a small child is concerned. It's still like wasting and death. That's so bad. Oh, and they thought they were doing the right thing. I'm 100% sure they felt they were doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, so you've got you've got your bread mixed with uh yeah. alum.
0: Aluminum, yeah. Uh-huh. You've uh-huh.
1: got your boracic acid to hide the fact that your milk filled with cow TB is going bad. And <laughs> by TB. the way, bovine TB or Mycobacterium bovis damages the internal organs and bones of the spine which leads to spinal deformities. We have talked yeah. previously about things like tiny Tim who to be fair, was Edwardian England's not, that's a whole different special, but, (laughs) but it is estimated. Don't don't you
0: dare mix up your Edwardian and Victorian England there, listeners. Uh,
1: But it is estimated that because of this adulteration about, up to as many as half a million children died from milk in the Victorian period. And then just one more, because I I really do. This is honestly one of my favorite documentaries to watch because I'm a dark, (laughs) terrible person. But also, so this was the Victorian era, but just domestic refrigerators began to enter the home in the Edwardian era. So this is the next special. And they were tremendously useful. So now you could store your milk and keep it from curdling. So you're going to get a little bit less TB, and bread was getting a little bit more purified, but the initial designs for fridges leaked toxic gases like ammonia, methyl chloride, and sulfur dioxide. So, God. God.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. So
1: that's, that's what you got me thinking about. I'm like, bread, what can I find with bread? I'm like, oh, wait a minute. The Victorians used to have a bunch of household products like bread and milk that could just kill you from eating day-to-day things found in the pantry.
0: Let's do a little bit of a shout out here to all the the stuff that you know. Some people freak out about as oh regulations and oh everything's regulated. Yeah, you know why you can go down the aisles and be safe picking up a loaf of bread or drinking milk and knowing that you're not going to get this shit. Um, let's give a shout out to all the public health people and the FDA and all those wonderful people taking care of us, Josh.
1: Otherwise, we could take a tour through the Victorian supermarket and read the additives. Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Well, there was (laughs) copper and strychnine in rum and beer. Oh, oh, sulfate of copper in pickles and bottled fruit and wine. Lead, chromate and mustard and snuff. Uh, Iron sulfate (laughs) in tea, copper Uh, and lead uh, again. Oh, wait, Venetian lead in sugar confections and chocolate. Uh, Oh, to
0: make it white. Okay. Uh, White pretty. Sure. Okay.
1: Red Hmm. lead gave Gloucester cheese its healthy red hue. Just walking down the supermarket, even if you're trying to eat healthy. Can you imagine if this stuff was in Whole Foods today? Yeah. Yeah. It's all natural. Organic. Right? Lead. That's organic.
0: (laughs) Comes right out the ground, Josh. Ready for yeah. you to eat.
1: Yeah. So just remember, folks: all natural doesn't mean safe. <laughs> Lots of things are yeah. natural. Arsenic <laughs> is natural.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and by the way, vice versa. You know, uh, human made doesn't mean unsafe. <laughs> so yeah. don't. Let, let's get away from that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, all right. So so that's kind of one of the more direct things. The others, I'm going to get a little bit more metaphorical. Uh, well. Mm-hmm. No, no, I'll give you... Yeah, okay. So the next, the okay, next okay. one I'll go with is garbage. and
0: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I, there's lots of... I, I was thinking maybe you'd go with like overcrowding, so like typhus or trench fever or plague, something like that, but you're probably going to go in a different way.
1: Yeah, I, I thought about going into garbage and overcrowding, but none of those are really specific to garbage itself. And digging through, there haven't been any amazing discoveries made by somebody digging through garbage, or if there have, <laughs> they haven't quite shared them
0: so okay, that okay. got me
1: thinking a little bit metaphorically about oh, okay. well what is what is our body's
0: garbage system? Oh like our sanitation system yeah,
1: and, and I don't mean okay. uh, you know when you go to the bathroom and use your sanitation yeah. station. <laughs>
0: Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're talking about like the cleanup system. So the, the stuff, so, uh, well, we could go two ways. So, um, your kidneys, of course, right. Clean everything out and, uh, um, and wash away the the waste and send it down the river.
1: Also started going that direction. And then I'm like, no, 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 that's still too easy. So I began, Okay. Okay. I began by saying, all right, let's look at uh what's the body's garbage service not the excretory system
0: oh oh i so, oh, so this is right up my alley this is infectious diseases so our lymph system you gather all the gunk in your lymph nodes and then you have these very very fine vessels um you know the lymphatics that carry it all back and then ultimately josh that big old thoracic duct right That goes Mm -hmm. and feeds into your, your giant veins and then, you know, gets flushed through. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Without it, definitely we'd be, we'd be toast. Sure.
1: So I've got two branches of it to talk about, you know, as long, for the most part, as long as we're healthy, there's really no real reason to think about the lymphatic system. We Mm -hmm. really only become aware of it when it's impaired, like in lymphedema. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, Normally, you have blood circulating throughout your body in the circulatory system. But Mm -hmm. for the most part, what do you do for transporting waste products out of your body like proteins, metabolic breakdown products, inflammatory products, things from the abdominal cavity? Yes, some of it comes out in your urine and your excrement. But Mm -hmm. most of it gets pushed into the lymphatic system, which runs alongside the blood vessels and covers our entire body like a net.
0: The neat thing about it is it's 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 not like kind of a waste system. It's more of like a recycling system because it takes all those. I mean, there's a lot of debris and stuff that have to be shed out and, you know, sent off. But there's quite a bit that, you know, because it's proteins and fats and stuff, it can get recycled.
1: Yeah. So every day it transports up to four liters of purified lymph back into the circulation. But if that system gets backed up, you can get a hugely large, like Rainbow Skittles wrestling arms, if you remember that arm wrestling commercial. But you can yeah. have a single limb or multiple limbs that just kind of swell up and never really go down. Uh, Because it's the lymph that's backed up, not your actual circulation or osmotic changes. Uh, And that's known as lymphedema. But Mm -hmm. even more exciting, there's a specific version of that just for the brain that was only discovered in 2013.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Wait, wait, there's lymphatics in the brain?
1: Yes, and it's called garbage lymphatics or glymphatic system. (laughs)
0: hey a scientist named something
1: yeah so the glymphatic system and that that was my garbage association
0: this is so cool this is so cool because this means that like we never thought about this right i mean the brain is not supposed to it's supposed to be very protected right blood brain barrier all that kind of a thing Um, But this, this would be a whole different set of networks where we could think about like how pathogens get in, how drugs get delivered, how crap gets taken out. This is so cool. Okay. Tell me all about it. I'm sorry. I just got excited.
1: So the glymphatic system is a network of vessels that clears waste specifically from the central nervous system, uh, mostly during sleep actually. And, and evidence kind of that started to be investigated during 2013 shows that this system may be disrupted in and contribute to some diseases of the brain. And what got me thinking about this was, you know, the big controversy that's going on right now about the new approval of this Alzheimer's drug. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a second or two. Sure, But mm-hmm. cerebrospinal fluid basically flows, just like lymphatic system, alongside the arteries, not in your circulation, and it's forced mm-hmm. into the spaces next to smaller blood vessels that enter the brain, and there it exchanges various things, uh, fluids, nutrients, through a channel expressed by a special kind of brain cell known as an astrocyte. Uh, And that's a cell whose feet surround the spaces around the brain's capillaries, which are the smallest kinds of blood vessels. And this forms the glymphatic vasculature. So it uses energy from arteries pulsing. So it actually lets the arteries surrounding the system push things in and out. It doesn't have any sort of transport itself. And it uses it from the pressure created as cerebrospinal fluid is made. This interchange basically results in the collection of waste products like metabolites and proteins that build up in your brain. And the simple arteries pulsing in your brain push it into the glymphatic system. And that transfers it to the cerebrospinal fluid. And then the cerebrospinal fluid carries it out of the brain to sites where it drains. So this has been studied most extensively in rodents. So we know that humans have a glymphatic system, but we haven't really been able to study it in detail. So researchers have shown that while rodents are sleeping, the interstitial space basically increases in volume, suggesting that while you sleep, this glymphatic activity is made possible by... I still don't entirely know. Like, it's there's not a ton of study on this. But... <laughs> Okay, but okay. Reasons that aging could disrupt this function include decreased amount of cerebrospinal fluid, decreased mm-hmm. flexibility of the arteries. So arteries grow more rigid and less compliant yeah. as you age and therefore they can't pulse as much and therefore they can't push as much waste into this CSF lymphatic system. And Are you brain- saying
0: they can't push it good?
1: They can't push it real good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But during sleep or anesthesia, the glymphatic Mm -hmm. system clears proteins such as amyloid beta, one of the main components of plaques that form in the brain during Alzheimer's dementia. And buildup of this protein could block, could provide blockages and therefore further reduce transport of this system. And we see that because people with Alzheimer's sleep less well than their healthy counterparts which could be related yeah. to this lymphatic system function. I mean, I know I'm throwing a lot of coulda, woulda, shouldas at you.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I It makes a lot of sense. For the longest time, so there was an awful kind of scary experiment that I, I think it was necessary, but it was still heartbreaking, that was performed on rats, where, you know, when we were trying to really understand what the hell sleep was all about, um, you know, there was this question of like, can you just go forever without sleep? And the answer was no, Josh. The Definitely answer for these not. Cool rats, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the answer was seven days. And it's not like it was really short. It was a few days. And it's not that these mice actually like went insane or had seizures or anything like that. They actually got like, overwhelming sepsis and they got you know these weird other toxic kind of seeming diseases and they'd flop over and die like a sudden death type of thing um you know almost as if like their immune system of all things like got cut out from under them this makes so much sense josh that if sleep actually has a function like this of like that's only the really good time when this, you know, the metabolites that are used during the day and everything are kind of swept and moved around and everything. And absolutely, you're 100% right. One of the early signs of Alzheimer's before you get dementia, and you know, you, you start losing your memory and those kind of things is actually poor sleep. Um, and I think also like, um, your senses like smell and other stuff kind of go off too, right? Um, so it makes such an amazing amount of sense that, you know, this is part of what keeps you healthy. And this is why we need sleep because this is the evolutionary function of sleep is to allow this lymphatic system to like go and go and go. Dude, this is so neat. This is so cool.
1: And that sort of leads us into the controversy going.
0: Can you tell me something real quick? So how come we learned about this just now?
1: Oh, it well, awesome. experiments conducted in, let's see, uh, it actually dates back to the 1980s, uh, where okay. at the University of Maryland, Patricia Grady and colleagues kind of hypothesized that there must be the existence of some sort of transport between the interstitial fluid of the brain and the CSF. So they're like, well, we know stuff is in the brain. but sure.
0: okay, okay.
1: But how does it get out? Because of exactly what you said. There's a blood-brain barrier. Yep. So in 1985, they kind of suggested that there was some kind of exchange along specific anatomical pathways with CSF moving into the brain along the outside of the vessels. And she suggested these paravascular channels were similar to lymph vessels in the periphery. I can tell you that it was coined by a Danish neuroscientist who discovered the system. And even though I said garbage lymphatic, he actually was referencing glial cells, which are basically...
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's
1: glial lymphatic, not garbage lymphatic.
0: Um, (laughs) But the metaphor is fantastic. This is such a wonderful metaphoric scene for Mahat.
1: The original article I found that turned me on to all of this uh, came from the university of rochester and they said mm-hmm. you know basically it was newer imaging techniques that was discovered so it was published cool, cool. i'll I'll link to it in the show notes it was published august 15th 2012 in science and translational medicine and that was the study led by this dutch scientist maken nadergaard who was the senior author of the paper and named the glial cells the glymphatic system
0: awesome but cool.
1: essentially, it, that's that's what it was. We simply got better imaging. That's, that is <laughs> the best I can tell you. And in the okay. article, they say the system operates only when it's intact and operating in the living brain, making it very difficult for earlier scientists who couldn't visualize CSF flow in a live animal and had to do uh, post-mortem examinations.
0: Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay, so we do have... Um, an issue here where they were kind of stuck, because of course, you know, when we do pathology on these, you know, you the poor animal is, is euthanized, and then afterwards, uh, you you have to wait a while before you can actually get into the brain and everything. It's well, think of it yeah, this way. And so it's probably a, they all like collapse out.
1: Yeah, think of it this way: it's a hydraulic system; it's filled with fluid, right? Sure. Once you open it, you break those connections, the fluid drains, and you can't study
0: it. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense.
1: But that does kind of lead us, now that we've talked about the glymphatic system and clearing, we can talk a little bit about this new controversy uh, going on with an Alzheimer's drug that has been tentatively, well, it's been approved by the FDA, but its approval has led to resignations from several high-level FDA officials who... Um, right, we're not thrilled about it. So, how familiar are you with this santosh?
0: Yeah, I, I actually don't know a ton in terms of like the the actual mechanism of the drug. I do know from the just uh, the few studies that I've read that we do have a problem where the the efficacy wasn't fantastic. Like it was a very ish kind of result, which, by the way, this happens a lot, you know, we, this happened with remdesivir over here in the United States, but there, it was such an ish result and said, you know, we really shouldn't approve it for treatment of Alzheimer's. A lot of people were saying that and it did get through somehow. And whenever that happens, there's questions of like, oh my, you know, was it it lobbied through? Was it pushed through? Because I'm guessing immediately, Josh, off the bat, it's going to cost like a million dollars for treatment or something like that. It's
1: something stupidly high that most people with Alzheimer's can't afford, uh, which is another – that's a whole other problem. But essentially – That's a whole
0: other thing, yeah. And so then, you know, they said – a lot of people said, no, you shouldn't approve this. And they said, if you do, you know, I'll quit. And so they quit.
1: The drug is known as Adjahelm, is the trade name, or aducanumab, uh, which means a monoclonal mm-hmm. antibody. Uh, mm-hmm. And it after it was approved on June 7th, so just this month, about okay. eight months after it had been harshly rejected, For approval by an FDA advisory committee. And essentially, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, Santos, it was designed to slow cognitive decline. So again, not a cure, just something to slow the progression. But it had very ambivalent and confusing data on effectiveness. Uh, The reason they decided against full approval was that the main clinical trial didn't really show a benefit to patients. You know, you're paying a lot of money for nothing. But a late-stage trial and a very early-stage trial showed the drug helped. Uh, statistically significant? Mm, it, yeah.
0: yeah, Unclear. Yeah. Um,
1: mm-hmm. But they, the reason they said it helped is that it showed that it did re- successfully reduce amyloid beta plaques in the brain and then made the jump to say that makes it reasonably likely. That was in a scientific paper reasonably likely, the treatment (laughs) would slow cognitive decline in patients. And here's the problem. The FDA said they've heard a lot of, they've heard the complaints from a lot of people with Alzheimer's who have, are desperate for some kind of effective treatment.
0: But the
1: scientists firing back said, yeah, sure. Great. It reduces beta amyloid plaques, but we have numerous studies that show amyloid targeting drugs don't help
0: patients. Mhm. Yep. Yep. And I'll put one on top of that, Josh, because this is something that I'm involved in, along with uh, our labs. At, um, but we're now part of a, a big um, effort by the NIH that's sending out funding. And hey, listeners, if you guys are scientists and you're looking for funding looking for alternative causes of alzheimer's disease that's deviant from the amyloid hypothesis so in my case it's there's a huge call to look for infectious diseases and their interaction with alzheimer's disease and you know we we're rapidly rapidly moving away from the beta amyloid hypothesis so like i that was the scary thing that like oh you're treating like a pathologic You know, like micropathologic problem, which may not even be a true, like underlying cause of the disease that you're trying to treat.
1: You're missing the forest for the
0: trees. Yeah, it shouldn't actually be marketed for treating Alzheimer's. It should be (laughs) like if you could have an ICD-10 code for like presence of amyloid plaques, like that's that's actually what you're treating.
1: That's (laughs) having an ICD-10 code is basically the rule 34 of medical coding. If you can think of it, there's an ICD-10 code for it. Uh, Yes. But Stein – or essentially agency pharmacologists who were arguing for the drug said that, well, if you reduce amyloid by a significant amount, you see clinical improvement in patients. But if you only reduce amyloid by a little, there's scant benefit, which even if we take that as true, there's no way to tell – which patients are gonna have a huge amyloid reduction versus a small and what is a huge amyloid reduction? What does that even mean?
0: There was no <laughs> what quantification. Does that even
1: mean? No, I mean but like yeah. what how do you quantify what counts as a large or small amount of amyloid reduction? And the right. skeptics were coming back and saying, okay, great, large, small, whatever, we still haven't seen any data that reducing amyloid at all benefits patients. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, we know this is a byproduct but correlation, causation, yada, yada, yada. So hmm. uh, that's that's kind of what the whole thing is. And it's a monthly intravenous treatment. The first new Alzheimer's treatment approved in almost 20 years. And it has a list price of $56,000 a year.
0: Oh, it's, it's so wrong. So wrong. So,
1: I'll be honest. I don't really have an opinion on this one way or the other. I'm still kind of watching the data as, as it comes out, but I'm not, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with the skeptics that this doesn't seem like it's worth the price they're charging. And it's more just giving kind of false hope to people who have a very unfortunate progressive disease.
0: Uh, yeah. And I, I think, Josh, that's the scariest. Uh, that might be some of the, the that last bit that what you said might be the the really awful part. There is. um, There's a vulnerability, you know, when you have a terminal disease like this, and preying on that vulnerability is absolutely disgusting. So if that's what's going on here, that it's just you know, you're kind of tugging at heartstrings of like, oh, we didn't have anything before. At least now we have something. And then exactly what you said, you know, tens and of thousands of dollars. for yeah.
1: makes you yeah. a garbage person.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Or in this case, group of people.
1: Yeah. So there we go. Garbage. Second word, done.
0: <laughs>
1: what a wow. journey we went on, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. It was good. It was good.
1: Uh, I believe I owe you at least one more word because I told you that the queen one was just a trivia and cheating. And shopping mall, mm, shopping mall is a little tough. We are starting to see medical malls where everybody's just kind of specializing into their own booth. So instead of Nike and Hot Topic and whatever, you have orthopedic braces, dental clinics, uh, saline ones. And I'm like, no, that's no good. Uh, There's nothing nothing worthwhile has ever been discovered in a shopping mall. Uh, So (laughs) I decided to go with Lake and there are so many things. I mean, we've talked in one of our history of antibiotics series, how many new bacteria or new antibiotics came out of soil or sewers or lakes or things, but I wanted to get something a little more recent. And so I, dug around until I found that in March of 2018, an antibacterial virus was discovered in a lake that successfully managed to treat MRSA or antibiotic resistant infections, actually more than just MRSA, but an antibacterial virus found in a Connecticut lake successfully treated a patient with a life-threatening antibiotic resistant infection in their heart. Uh, Okay, so we're going to go on another journey, not quite as exciting as the last, but mm-hmm. an antibacterial virus is a fancy newspaper way of saying a bacteriophage.
0: Sure, absolutely, okay. I, I'm, I was principally thinking of phages, but I didn't want to say it out of hand because it could have had a different, um, yeah, different kind of virus. I don't know if there are other kind of antibacterial viruses, but um, okay, phage.
1: So, so we're talking about bacteriophages, which we've covered on the show before. And in yeah. this particular case report, this Connecticut doctor uh, basically mm-hmm. got an infection. He had a replacement. He had a heart operation to replace his aortic arch. And okay. this surgical site got infected and required massive dose of antibiotics to keep him alive. But one of the bacteria infecting his heart, Pseudomonas, had developed mm-hmm. a resistance to drug treatment. This oh, is a oh, okay, huge gotcha, problem. Gotcha. Right.
0: right. And we're this is what we call like the post-antibiotic era, Josh, where if we start to lose enough antibiotics that we'll basically have a ton of useless drugs, but we'll be back to the like how vulnerable we were to infection in like 1912.
1: Yeah, so that's where this gets Exciting because as you mentioned, yes, as drugs start building up more and more resistance to mm-hmm. antibiotics, we become mm-hmm. more at risk from them. but this doctor's doctor yeah <laughs> doctor doctor, um, <laughs>
0: yeah, doctor. <laughs>
1: mentioned that a recent virus hunting expedition, which is a thing that exists uh, mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. netted a bacteriophage <laughs> right they uh-huh. just the, the article really casually dropped it. Oh yeah. Virus hunting expeditions.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, that's a thing.
0: Yeah. See, this is how you should really be like kind of enticing, uh, especially young people to come into science uh, because, you know, you can't be like, Oh yeah, we do PCR and fluorescence and that kind of a thing. But if you're like, come on kids, let's go on a virus hunting expedition like, you see how many of those kids, like, cheer and run.
1: Kids? I kind yeah. of am rethinking my career choices. Yeah,
0: yeah, there you go. Yeah, you put on so, your, your leather hat and your satchel. That's right.
1: will <laughs> be the Indiana Jones of viruses. It belongs in a CDC center.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. Okay. But. This virus hunting expedition had found a bacteriophage with a particular affinity for Pseudomonas and suggested that they could do an experimental treatment using phage therapy to combat the infection. So okay. the phage, the doctor surgically administered hundreds of thousands of tiny bacteriophages into the patient's chest and the viruses successfully killed the bacteria and the patient was found to be free of infection. In and of itself... Mm-hmm. This is interesting, but as I said, this is not the first time we've talked about phage therapy, but here's the really cool thing about it. In this particular case, what we learned is that this bacteriophage, known as OMKO1, O-M-K-O-1, attached to proteins on the surface of bacteria that allowed them to pump out antibiotics and survive assault. So once this bacteriophage destroyed bacteria with these pumps, the only ones who survived who became resistant to the phage were mutants who didn't have pumps that could pump out antibiotics, meaning you basically okay, exactly. force the bacteria to choose, well, you can resist the bacteriophage, but then you're mm-hmm. sensitive to antibiotics again, or <laughs> you can resist antibiotics, but then we can attack you with a phage. The bacteria are yeah. backed into an evolutionary corner checkmated by your queen (laughs) twofer
0: (laughs) Um. and i'm i'm sure there are folks who are like you know well why not make both that kind of a thing everything has a metabolic and an energy cost right Uh, so if you're going to encourage those mutations to make you know the type of channels and mechanisms you need to fight both of these things there is going to be a step off to where, when even when you're not being challenged with those, but you still need to just survive, then it costs too much to actually make those molecules. Does that make sense? Yes.
1: Right. Presumably so you, to you our audience as you well,
0: gotta, <laughs> you gotta you gotta pick one. Yeah, I know you're speaking for the rest of our audience. So, you, yeah, you gotta pick one. You gotta pick one.
1: So, what what this is opening up is a whole new field of. Of essentially infectious disease treatment that is evolutionary based uh, where you 're basically doubling down, so if you know you attack it with a phage, this exerts selection pressure for bacteria to evolve phage resistance but the trade off is that now they can 't pump out antibiotics because they don 't have those mechanisms in place you can only do so many things at once so they 're looking mm-hmm. now for phages that select for uh, essentially different bacterial strains that work mm-hmm. target these kinds of pumps. So you can force the bacteria where no matter what direction it chooses, it loses.
0: Right. Um, Sorry. Sorry, little guy. You so die.
1: this was, this was kind of one of the first case studies that involved therapeutic application of phages to, that ended up revealing this disruption Of the evolutionary perspective. So I thought that was a super cool thing, and it all came out of a little phage they discovered in a Connecticut lake.
0: I love it. I absolutely love it. So I
1: went a bit further afield. I didn't go quite as direct or literal as your words, but I think I managed to cover bread, garbage, lake, and I even threw in Queen. So here we are. Born to be kings,
0: kings. we're
1: the princes (laughs) of the universe. Oh, such a great band.
0: Ah, it is. And by the way, a fun, fun film for those of you who do not or haven't seen the piece of masterful garbage that is Highlander.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's got Sean Connery, a Scotsman, playing a... uh, Egyptian,
0: Spaniard.
1: playing a Spaniard oh, born in Egypt
0: Yes <laughs> <laughs>
1: while, well, while the main character who's supposed to be also a Scotsman is a uh-huh. Frenchman yeah.
0: with <laughs> who is
1: supposed to have grown up in New York
0: Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no He grew up in The highlands, highlands of Scotland
1: or, with his French he, he accent did,
0: But he yeah. <laughs>
1: Until he moved to New York.
0: Oh my God! Oh <laughs> um, my God! Yeah. But
1: but if you want to feel really old, practically immortal, Santos, mm-hmm. are you ready to feel old? Uh, this has nothing to do with Highlander, but okay. Releasing this month is the next Fast mm-hmm. and the Furious film. Do you know how old the Fast and the Furious series is now?
0: Oh dear. Okay, this is the ninth film, right? F nine or yeah. Fast nine, I guess it is. Um it's not like one per year. It would be one per every like 2 years or so. So like like 18 I'll I'll put a little bit of a margin like 20 years old.
1: Yeah. Fast and okay. the Furious is a 20 wow. year old franchise.
0: That's but that's awesome that it's gone that long with like the pure ridiculousness of what's in those movies.
1: The first movie was just about stealing from Mack Trucks and now Almost certainly, they're going to go into space.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Wait, but in a car, like Elon yeah, Musk? Yeah,
1: in a car, they're going to find some way to you know drive hot rods into space. Yeah, with maybe with Elon Musk. Um, yeah, but I, I have to tell you, this is a word out there to producers of the next Fast and the Furious movie. This this one's for free. If you don't call it Fast Ten, your seatbelts, you are just throwing <laughs> away an opportunity.
0: <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh,
1: Now, normally we would include a just the tip, but well, it would be medically related. But I'm going to tell you right now, we're not doing that because prior (laughs) to this episode recording, Santo shared (laughs) with me this fantastic bit of trivia about James (laughs) Bond and specifically the original James Bond theme. and
0: going ot- <laughs>
1: Please, share this with the audience as we close out this episode.
0: Where, uh, yeah, where does yeah, the
1: original I- James Bond theme come from?
0: Yeah, I- I- and I don't know if maybe, I, I don't know like how uh, like licensed this <laughs> stuff is, but I believe we're able to show something like, 15 seconds or something like that, um, you know, without being, you know, chased after by like the broccoli family. And for those of you who don't know, yes, Alfred Cubby Broccoli um, was the dude who, uh, you know, was kind of spearheading the franchise way back when. So, <laughs> Josh, the story goes that I was watching one of our, yours and mine favorite shows, which is QI. It's a show in Britain about just beautiful trivia. And the, the writers actually have a beautiful podcast called There's No Such Thing as a Fish. And I was watching QI, and they had this awesome episode about this is where the James Bond theme came from. <laughs> and it starts out with a guy named Monty Norman, who wrote Broadway musicals, fast forward past all of his really successful work. And he was writing this thing. <laughs> He was writing this thing uh, called A House for Mr. Biswas, which is about Trinidadian uh, East Indians. And he wrote this song about an unlucky sneeze. It it got shelved. (laughs) It got completely shelved. They couldn't do anything more with it. So then like later the broccoli family came over and said hey you know we need you to write this theme for this movie called Dr. No with the super spy and after you know taking a look at everything came back around and he he took his unlucky sneeze bollywood style song and reworked it into what we now as the most iconic piece of spy movie music ever
1: I bet you're asking yourself, what could that possibly sound like?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean. He
1: was born
0: with this unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. it's all agreed that I am the reason why my father fell into the village, born and drowned. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Uh,
1: but easily my favorite line thus far is Yeah. Yeah Hindus and Chinese, Africans Chinese and Portuguese. And
0: Portuguese, uh-huh.
1: All of them are worried about my sneeze. Da-na, achoo. Da-na, achoo. <laughs>
0: uh
1: and it just got us yeah. think so there is there is a a museum dedicated to Monty Norman and the James Bond theme in Sweden, of all places. And now you know everything about it that I do. But it did get us <laughs> thinking uh, briefly about sneezing and the photic reflex, which is something I have. And we'll, we'll kind of yeah. close out with a brief discussion of the photic reflex. Um, Santos, <laughs> you summed it up far better, as I'm still laughing about how Portuguese are worried about my sneeze.
0: Achoo! you! <laughs> Yeah. Um so Josh I think you will uh, you, uh, this was a forced acronym but we found the achu syndrome uh which you know they went ahead okay they finally said you know what we have bad naming conventions let's try to do right by at least one disease so this is actually from Bethesda and the the medical genetics summary called it autosomal dominant compelling helioophthalmic outburst or achoo syndrome. Or if you wanted to add the syndrome on the ad, uh, you could call it achoos. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a sneeze that's triggered in response to sunlight. Um, there is something called, like one in four of us actually have a prickling sensation, where, you know, if we see the the sun or if we stare at the sun in the right way, we kind of get a, a cross wiring and tickles our nose. But that pure photic sneezing is a lot less common. And Josh, there actually are genes identified that go along with the chew syndrome.
1: I have some terrible mutant powers, man. I walk out into bright sunlight and <laughs> I have this uncontrollable sneezing fit. I am lactose <laughs> intolerant. I would be Aww. one of the worst additions to the X-Men.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But And by the way, you will – it's autosomal dominant, so you will 100% pass those on – well, Chew, anyway, to, the, to your offspring.
1: And then I'm going to have to tell my children – I was born with an unlucky sneeze.
0: Da-da, <laughs> <na-na-na>. <laughs> and Dad, well, how do you know that? Well, son, you see, the Hindus and the Chinese, <laughs> the Africans and the Portuguese, and the Portuguese, <laughs> all of them agree
1: <laughs> about my sneeze. so (laughs) so that's it for this week as always we love to hear your comments (laughs) questions and concerns yeah, uh,
0: tell us if you're a sun sneezer.
1: That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. <laughs> Santoshin and friends. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wash your hands, get your vaccine, or wear your mask or both. And if you've managed to tick all of those boxes off and you live in the US, now more things are opening up. So hey, until next time, happy travels.
0: Happy travels, guys.